George DeVoe at Malibu Space Watch had three sightings last week. You see anything unusual? Your television reception interrupted? Call 555-1313. Welcome to 200 Today, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidai Ravishaw. Which fantastic episode of The Rockford Files are we talking about today, Epi? Now, we are, we are watching uh, something from Season 3, which... Uh, this is the first time we've dipped our toes into season three, I believe. Uh, episode 17, Just Another Polish Wedding. And this is going to be, this episode's going to have uh, Gandhi, who is a character we've not talked about yet. We haven't actually done an episode with him, but by now I think he's had one or two episodes on the Rockford Files. I believe this is his second episode of three, maybe four. Yeah. Gandhi, Gandalf Finch. Uh, played by Isaac Hayes, which is amazing. I'm sure we'll get more into that. Yeah. And this one also features Lou Gossett Jr. as a competitor PI. Marcus Aurelius Hayes, which is confusing. Mm -hmm. Isaac Hayes plays Gandhi, and Marcus Hayes is played by Louis Gossett Jr. He's also a recurring character. I believe this is... This is also the second appearance of him, and he might have one other one. But uh, this, I think this is the only episode with the two of them together, and they're quite the duo, which is kind of the focus of the episode. Yeah. This one was written by the creators uh, with a story consultant credit to Juanita Bartlett, who we've mentioned before uh, as one of the driving forces of their writing as the seasons went on, and directed by William Ward, who directed 28 episodes of The Rockford Files. And so he has the he's the leader of the director standings. Oh yeah, he's the the most directed. He yes, he is the most directed according to our source for all stats, IMDb. So yeah, steady steady hands on the wheel with this one. Uh, the the whole casting crew is pretty. They're very much in the groove. I think. I was thinking about that as I was watching this episode because this is very uh, like it's season three. So they they found their their feet. And I feel like this is a very playful episode, mm -hmm. which is something that, you know, I think only really happens once you start to get comfortable with what the show is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of that feeling, that kind of uh, playful feeling, comes from the Gandhi-Marcus yeah. relationship. And then also the Gandhi-Rockford relationship, which are both ki kind of humorous in their own way without being slapstick or silly. Right. And it really does feel like the actors are having a lot of fun, I guess. It, that seems to come through the screen. The story is pretty straightforward it does have mystery and 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 a reveal like almost all rockford stories do but the actual a to b plot of it is relatively simple so we're probably going to be talking a little bit more about the characters and how they interact i think than the kind of nitty-gritty of of the details of this of the mystery because there aren't that many so we start off with the montage the preview montage we get some some good clips that let us know clearly that Gandhi's going to be in the episode and that uh, Marcus is also going to be in it. And 
<laughs> lots of people blowing smoke up each other's asses. I, I don't know if anything in particular stands out from the uh, preview montage other than to say we got some fun characters for you. There's some kind of altercation at what's obviously a wedding reception. Yeah. So that ties into our title. Yes. Just another Polish wedding. But other than that, foreshadowing is mostly about the characters for sure. But the big mystery is the the message left on Rockford's answering machine this episode from the Malibu Space Watch. I don't know what the hell. <laughs> I looked this up. Uh, and the only reference I could find is this actual episode. So I don't know if it was a thing. I'm pretty sure that the, you know, the answering machine messages, I'm sure were just banged out a bunch of them at a time, you yeah. know, just like silly ideas that people had. I think I read at some point that they regret it setting the precedent where they'd have <laughs> to come up with a new one. And I mean, honestly, I feel for them. I've, I've done oh, a few, yeah. few of that in my own creative endeavors where I was like, oh my God. So uh, this this one in particular was just a bizarre one. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, this this episode has pretty much nothing to do with space. We kick off with a, a crew combing over what it looks like. I mean, it's it's the field outside someone's house, like the property. Uh, it looks like it's already been plowed over or something. Uh, it looked like a pretty empty dirt lot. Yeah, and there's men in overalls, and there's construction equipment. Man with a clipboard. A gorilla-looking type. Let's talk about that for a moment, because, yeah, there's a type now, right? There's a, Yeah. There's definitely, you look at someone in a Rockford episode, and you're like, well, I don't care what they say they are. They're a heavy. And this guy, immediately. And mm -hmm. there's one later in this episode, when we get to the wedding, that I, if you can help me remember, talk about, that isn't. And I totally thought he was going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can, we can go into that. Yeah. But there's definitely a look now. Yeah, for sure. And to the practiced eye, this episode actually does a lot of kind of giving you the bare minimum to establish context for characters <laughs> if you haven't seen it before, but kind of assuming that you know who these people are. Um, and that extends to the, the casting of these heavies, uh, the gorillas. So yeah, this, this guy comes onto the scene asking some questions of the, uh, coat wearing clipboard wielding manager or or whatever he is. It's, it's a pretty short scene, but basically he comes in and asks what's going on. They have a little bit of dialogue and we learned that uh, a man died. His name was Tom Evans. But when they, you know, filed the paperwork, it turned out that that was an alias. His name is actually Pat O'Hurley. The reason they ran paperwork was because in his house, they found a bunch of money. Yeah. And now the county is digging around literally with digging equipment to see if there's any more money, because I guess when there's mysterious unreported amounts of money in someone's house, uh, you see if that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, he, he literally says something like, with old men like these, yeah, they can bury it anywhere. Mm -hmm. So our gorilla uh, heads off screen back to his car, which is with its own set of digging equipment. And he's saying, oh, we're too late. The The county's already here. So the authorities are the ones doing this digging. Um, that's on the up and up. We should point out that the digging equipment here is not, it's not that they have a couple shovels or something. They have like heavy dudes. Oh, no, it's a backhoe. Yeah, it's yeah. it's big. But these goons are too late, even though they did bring their own backhoe. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to send the guys home. And so their next step, this is kind of just like a, the line right at the end of the scene. But um, they're going to tap someone's phone at the probate office and see if they can tackle it from that direction. So that's the 
beginning situation for the episode. This old guy died. He had this money. Probate is trying to find out if there's any more and presumably who the heir to this uh, this cash would be. They don't say how much money at this point, mm-hmm. um, but there's a clear indication it's clearly going to be a lot of money. You don't you don't bring a backhoe right to dig up a hundred dollars and and they're going to tap into the county phone like they're not second rate. They've got to be connected. There's no For way sure. that these are just plucky go-getters who thought an old man dying, he's got to be hiding money somewhere. So to the Rockford watching eye, uh, probably the mob, right? Yeah. Like that's a pretty good assumption with anything like this. They're probably mob. This guy probably had some connection to them. They want the money. We'll go forward from there. So we go to Rockford's trailer where uh, he's hanging out with his good friend, Gandalf Finch. <laughs> yes. Again, a lot of these scenes are mostly dialogue, and a lot of the dialogue is kind of character building. So rather than try and recap the conversation, I think I'm just going to pull out the stuff that I thought was interesting, and you can you know, let me know if, I, right. if there's yeah. anything else in there you want to talk about. Gandalf, or Gandhi, I mean, he is also a gorilla in his own way. He's a, uh, he solves problems with, with violence for the most part. And he's kind of talking about how bouncing, which is what he has been doing, isn't what it used to be. Yeah. They've instituted this new uh, rule or law about if the bouncers hit the clients, then they're going to get 50 bucks deducted out of their paycheck. But if they take a hit and don't hit back, then they get a bonus. It's just not the way that Gandhi uh, rolls, right? When someone messes with him, he messes with them right back. If we, if we haven't seen the previous episode, it, it becomes obvious that Gandhi and Rockford know each other from prison. Yeah, it comes up later where, where they kind of give the backstory of Gandhi in like one sentence. Yeah. Uh, which is really clever the way that's done in the episode. But the backstory is that Rockford was hired by Gandhi after Gandhi got out of prison for time served. Mm-hmm. He hired Rockford to prove that he was innocent, which Rockford did and got him pardoned. So they didn't know each other in jail, but Gandhi hired Rockford when he got out of jail. Right. That was the beginning of their relationship. One thing I love about this particular scene is that, that Rockford isn't isn't having it. Rockford's distracted. Yeah. He's looking through the fridge for some food, which is your thing, and I'll leave that to you. The tension immediately is whether Gandhi ate Rockford's, or Rockfish, let's be clear. Yeah. Gandalf calls Rockford Rockfish, which is delightful. So, uh, is whether Gandhi ate Rockfish's ham or not that he was saving special to mix with his eggs for breakfast (laughs) with the back and forth over the bouncing thing and hey did you eat my ham turns out that yes Gandhi did indeed eat his ham when he wasn't looking and Rockford's so annoyed (laughs) what I like is this bouncing thing is that he's a sympathetic year right Gandhi's just saying this is the problem this is the problem and Rockford's like yeah I know but I can tell why they do that Yeah, he explains, like, you know, they're concerned about their insurance. Their insurance goes up if they get sued. And if you start punching people, they'll get sued. Like, Rockford knows how it works. It's a a situation that he's in when he's with Angel and when he's with Gandhi. And as we'll learn a little bit later, he's with Marcus, where he knows he's with someone whose vision of the truth might be a little biased. Mm -hmm. That is the most diplomatic way I can describe somebody like, say, Angel. And then Rockford doesn't let go. He'll be sympathetic, but he'll he'll hold that line. Like, well, this is this is what reality is. So let's mm-hmm. not pretend it's not that. He's an explainer in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Like, I understand your perspective, but this is how it is. 
Right. Because he's more of a realist in a lot of ways uh, than these other characters. The reason that Gandalf's there in the first place is because he punched a, someone at a bar where he was bouncing. So Rockford bailed him out. And that's why they're hanging out together uh, this morning. All of this is kind of underscored by Gandhi pushing at Rockford about how he's, his business isn't very good. He's not making much money. Gandhi doesn't think that bouncing is going to be what he wants to keep doing because of all these changes. So maybe Rockford should take him on as a partner. This, if you're used to Rockford Files, this is usually the indication that we're about to get an episode full of other PIs. Because <laughs> other PIs are always trying to work with Rockford. They want a part of his action or muscle him out of the action or, or what have you. Seems to be a pretty tough racket being a uh, PI. Yeah. And so when they come into contact, it's never smooth. Rockford, of course, says nothing, nothing doing. He doesn't, he doesn't need a partner. He doesn't like to get into trouble. And that's what Gandhi does is make trouble. And they, uh, and he offers to drop him off uh, on his way because he has a client that he's meeting this morning. Mm -hmm. So he'll drop Gandhi off wherever he wants on, on his way to meet the client. On the way out of the trailer, Gandhi manages to rip Rockford's sport coat. Because he's so much bigger than Rockford, but he puts it on just for fun and then rips the sleeve. Again, underscoring how Rock how Rockford probably wearing his clothes until they fall apart, right? He's not buying new clothes all the time. Uh, so that was a nice little detail there. Between having his ham eaten and his <laughs> coat torn, I think he was more annoyed about the ham. Yeah. Of course he is, because he was saving that. He had plans for that ham. I can imagine Rockford repairing his own coat, too. Like, I could see him... <laughs> Sitting on that front stoop, trying to sew the sleeve back in. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily doing a good job of it, but, you know. There's a great line here where Rockford tells Gandhi, he says, just finish your beer. It's almost 3 or 8.30 in the morning. At that point, I don't think it was clear to me that it was morning. Right. Like, And then Gandhi's just sitting there drinking a beer. This is the, this is the life that they lead. A life of leisure. Well, Gandhi sticks with Rockford while he goes to the county probate court to talk to his client who's apparently a official of some kind it's not really made clear another in our long string of memorable throwaway characters yes with his his lapels and his weird pattern of speaking i guess the writers i think had a lot of fun with this anything that they could have turned into an acronym or uh yeah just made into a string of letters they did for him for some reason that was the clear implication was that if you work for the county eventually you'll start talking this way even ending the conversation with a-okay yeah. <laughs> which is like the goofiest sign off uh but essentially he's hiring rockford to engage in this probate air search they have a name he has a mm. brother named finn but they don't know where finn is so they're hiring Rockford to track him down. If he can track him down, he gets a finder's fee to deliver this uh, inheritance, which is $600,000. Yeah, that's the inheritance. And I was trying to figure out what Rockford's getting out. Obviously, I'm doing his books as I'm doing this. He's bailed out Gandhi. He has to pay mm -hmm. for a new suit or repair the suit. I don't know the numbers for those. He has to buy more ham. Yes. It seems likely that what Rockford is getting is 200 a day because Gandhi mentioned something about that later. And that's, we get to it. Marcus is suspicious about what Rockford's plan is. Cause he's like 200 a day for, if this guy's worth $600,000, then uh, you can get more out of him. But I think one of the things about this episode, Rockford enjoys a steady paycheck. So he yeah. takes these low key, easy jobs. Like the reason why he's been telling Gandalf, or at least what he's giving Gandalf is a reason for why he doesn't want to hire him is that he doesn't 
he doesn't want to throw weight around and because that gets other people to throw weight around and he doesn't he he likes to be quiet in what he does. He doesn't want to have the kind of case where he needs Gandhi yeah. to be involved. He's made his peace with these kind of podunk. It's not glamorous. It's not yeah. high yield, but it's steady. And he knows he's going to get the paycheck, whether it's just his 200 a day or whether he does have some kind of finder's fee associated with the delivery. So my assumption going into this one, it was he was just doing the 200 a day just because yeah. that seems to be within his character for this particular episode. So he gets his... Uh, client, you know, to give him the info. He has a little folder of the guy's information. But when he gets back in the car with Gandy, Gandy is angry because Rockfish is working for the county. Yeah. Now, how can you work for the county? The county's the one who put me in jail and put you in jail. Gandy does not like authority. He has this line like, how can you feed the hand that grabbed you? Yeah. Something like that. He's a little bit like a, a teenager reacting to something that their parent does or their teacher does or something. Yeah. Where it's like, you're selling out to this structure, this abstract structure that I don't like. And there's no real thought to the realistic implications of like why you would have that kind of relationship with, you know, the county or... There's a naivete that they're uh, attributing to him, which mm -hmm. goes back to... Even when Rockford was explaining why the the whole bouncer deal yeah. was the way it was. It, it definitely, I think your teenager thing is right. It definitely has this feel of like Rockford is the adult who has to deal with all these adult things. Like right down to you're eating the ham out of my fridge. <laughs> like when you're under my house, under my rules, young man. I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right that, that there's sort of a stick it to the man kind of impertinence. The only other thing I want to make clear about Gandhi in particular, though, is that it comes from a very specific place, which was he was wrongfully accused. Yes. And this doesn't come up in this episode other than just a line about his background. But if you see in the previous episode that he was in, he was wrongfully accused of the murder of his wife and imprisoned. Yeah. And no one believed him. And, you know, jail was not good for him. So this knee-jerk reaction against the state makes total sense given the full backstory of the character right in this episode it's he's he's more of a foil for the other characters than anything else so you know since rockford is taking this job from the state then gandy's gonna kind of give him crap about it but there's a parallel here with rockford where they both have a moral center mm -hmm. right they're not exactly aligned but they're both good guys you would you would definitely consider both of them good guys and they both think that there's nothing wrong with their particular way of getting things done Right. And they're both wrong about that. Like Gandhi's <laughs> particular way is through intimidation and violence, and uh, Rockford's is through deception and scams. And Gandhi definitely looks down on that, as we'll find out. Yeah. And uh, I think Rockford looks down on how Gandhi does it. And there's, there's a, that's a fruitful area, you know, to mine. Well, and the rest of this episode really kind of plays with those dichotomies. So yeah. we'll get more into them as we go. So for the rest of the scene, Rockford is just kind of laying out for Gandhi and for the audience, if you've only been having the TV on in the background or something, kind of laying out stakes of the job for him. Here's all the facts. I'm going to track down the air, deliver him with 600000 If I can't get him, then the county gets it. Theoretically, all our taxes go down. Ha ha ha. Gandhi keeps kind of poking at him about working for the county, but also 
has this sense of not really having anything else to do or anywhere else to go. Mm -hmm. Rockford offers to drop him wherever he wants, and he says that he doesn't have anywhere in particular he needs to be. We kind of slide into this situation where, where we kind of see that Gandalf just doesn't really have anything going on which is part of why he keeps needling Rockford about working with him. And so Rockford finally gives in and is like, look, I know lots of other PIs. Some of them are looking for help. I'll hook you up with someone. And Gandhi gets very appreciative. That would be uh, what he wants. Uh, and that kind of rescues his relationship with uh, Rockford in this moment, right? He goes from being mad at him for working for the county to appreciative that he's going to try and hook him up with a job. I think this is kind of an important moment in television. It's a small moment. And oftentimes we we lose these moments. But uh, the, the plan comes out and Gandhi responds to it by saying, A-OK, obviously mimicking the guy that they had just met. And the both of them have this genuine laugh. And it's this tiny little thing, but it's, you look at the situation between Gandalf and Rockford, and you spend this whole time where they're at odds and in tension with each other. You need a moment to reveal why they're friends. Oh, yeah. You need a moment to say, this is how they are when they're just enjoying each other's company. Sometimes we forget to do that in, in whatever medium we're using. Mm. Like, you know, sometimes we're just like, well, they're friends. That's why they hang out. You're, you're like, this is the most abusive relationship I've ever witnessed. <laughs> right. Like, why are these people friends? Right. That was just like a really good moment. And they do this a couple times throughout the this episode where they have these people at odds and then just completely just let them enjoy each other's company mm-hmm. and then it just tells the audience oh yeah of course they'll hang they, they like each other you know despite all this they, they like each other speaking of enjoying each other's company we go to one of these other pis that rockford is promising to hook gandy up with we follow rockford into a big fancy restaurant it's obviously very expensive where he is meeting Marcus for the first time in the in this episode or Gabby as he starts being called uh shortly thereafter. So this is Lewis Gossett Jr. He is young. Young <laughs> and spry. He's uh so he has more reveals to him over the course mm-hmm. of the episode, right? So we'll kind of get into his deal as we go. But in our initial situation, it's obvious that he and Rockford are good may not good friends, but are friendly know each other have a relationship the whole first half of the scene is basically just them bantering back and forth marcus kind of gives jim crap for being low rent while he's puts himself out there as uh someone who's into more like white collar crimes and like having big clients and having money and having employees and all this kind of stuff where they meet is a place chosen by marcus right and it's It's an expensive restaurant that requires a tie. And when we first see Marcus, the chair he's sitting in, it's a goddamn throne. Oh, yeah. He's well-dressed, you know, ready to preside over the world. There's a little, there's enough of a hint in all this, especially in how Rockford clearly isn't buying it. Right. His response is kind of like, yeah, I know you're full of crap in a friendly way. (laughs) So I think Rockford's laying on a layer of crap as well, right? Yeah. He's buttering him up. Because he knows that he's kind of shuffling Gandhi off on him. Uh, and he's like, well, you have a much bigger operation than I do. <laughs> you have all these needs. You need employees. Yeah. You know, Marcus says, well, someday I'll even buy you out. He goes, well, you deal in hot air and I deal in cash. They kind of have each other's number, right? Yeah. As the audience, I think we see that by the end of this this banter. 
their conversation is interrupted by the dulcet tones of Isaac Hayes as uh, Gandhi is yelling that he's not going to wear no tie. Marcus is like, so this is your guy like that you're trying to get me to hire? Rockford and Marcus have a $10 bet about whether Gandhi's going to make it in without a tie or not, which, first of all, was in cash, which I appreciated. Yeah. And then, sure enough, Gandalf physically moves the major D out of his way and then comes over to their table and sits down. And here's where we get the little quick backstory about Gandalf. Like, I was in jail for something I didn't do. Rockfish cleared my name and I got a pardon. Marcus does this little bragging thing just before Gandhi shows up saying that he's mainly hiring people with pre-law degrees. And Rockford says, well, this guy's got lots of legal experience. And then Marcus realizes what, what he's been handed and says, oh, this is more of a jailbird degree or something, or a yardbird. And uh, Gandhi is not a fan of that. No, he takes offense real quick. You know, he doesn't want to be in with the law, but he also doesn't want to be looked down upon for having been in jail. So the whole dynamic of the rest of the scene is basically Gandhi getting Marcus's back up or scaring him. Mm -hmm. Marcus trying to say, no, I'm not interested. And then Rockford and Gandhi both kind of putting pressure back on him until finally he's like, you know what? I have a, a client that I'm meeting and I could use someone with just your skills to help me out. It's like, so you have a job. Lots of promises are thrown out. But yeah, again, there's no actual dollar amount. As I sit and try and figure that out, he's, he'll throw around accounts receivable, blah, 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 jargon. Yeah. But he, won't. he uses all these buzzwords. Yeah. But he's like, Jim, get whatever you want. Put it on my tab. We'll we'll see you later. Which then leads to the delightful reveal of Marcus's little con on Jim. He called ahead, impersonated Jim, said that he was taking Marcus out for a birthday lunch and instructed the restaurant not to let him pay and ordered a birthday cake. Jim uh, is now on the hook for this birthday cake that he didn't order, but he also ordered mm -hmm. a quiche. Yeah. A quiche, a wine, and a mousse. And chocolate mousse for dessert. So this is what we get. This is Rockford's alone, and he's not paying mm. for the meal. He orders quiche, wine, chocolate mousse. This is great. What a star. Each one of those was buzzwords for expensive food, right? Like each, yeah. each one of those, especially in the 70s. Back then, mm -hmm. that would have been uh, fancy. And, and uh, it's definitely a wah-wah moment, <laughs> you know. Quiche, like he doesn't order ribs. He doesn't order no. a steak. He orders a quiche, which is essentially fancy scrambled eggs. Yeah. Right? This is, again, in keeping with his character of someone who likes simpler things. Yeah. Like that's a fancy version of a simple thing to me. Yeah. And then when he learns that he's also on the hook for a birthday cake that he didn't order, uh, and then is asked what kind of quiche, he responds with the inexpensive kind. <laughs> so Marcus won Rockford Zero in the yes. Con Olympics thus far. Well, I mean, Marcus is out $10 for that bet, but probably up. So Marcus, in addition to setting up these expensive lunches that he doesn't have to pay for, also rides in a limousine. So he and Gandhi get into the back of this limo and uh, start sniping right away because Gandhi's like, what's the job? And Marcus is like, oh, oh, there's no job. You were my ticket away from, from paying for that lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so like Rockford, Marcus very good at reading the situation and taking advantage of what's available to him. Uh, but this sets Gandhi off because he basically just got lied to straight to his face, right? Yeah. Again, there's a lot of 
kind of back and forth. This is where Marcus kind of starts using all those buzzwords about how he runs his business and how he takes a 3% margin on the difference between the rate of change of the job market and, you know, all these things that are just nonsense are clearly just meant to confuse who he thinks of as kind of a simpleton, I think. Yeah. But Gandhi's having none of it, rips his telephone, co- the telephone cord out to demonstrate his strength and anger. In the back of this limo, he's got a, you know, the old style phone that he uses to communicate. Well, actually, I think he uses it to call someone else later, but like to communicate with the driver. This is one in a series of moments where Gandhi is, I don't want to say shockingly violent, but he does destructive stuff and uh, Marcus takes it in such incredible stride. When they first meet, he kind of says like, wow, you really have a hair trigger, huh? And it's pretty literal. Like Gandhi goes off with very little provocation, especially when he thinks he's being lied to or talked down to. Yeah. So he basically insists and uh, he's not putting up with Gabby's slick talk. And so Marcus is like, okay, fine, fine. You have a job. Don't hurt me. Right. And also he didn't get to eat any lunch. So Marcus is like, fine, I'll take you out to lunch. Where Gandhi, I will note, gets a taco. (laughs) He and Rockford, I think, soulmates in many ways. So, of course, he, he gets a taco at this outdoor eatery where... Marcus finally is like, how can I turn this to my advantage? And he wants to know what Rockford's working on. So he gets the story of this uh, inheritance tracked down out of Gandhi, who doesn't think anything of, you know, just sharing the story because it's just what was happening with Jim, right? Right. He doesn't know that he's feeding the competition with Jim's plans. And this is where Marcus goes like, wait a second, he's doing this for the county? Yeah. He reads more into it than there is, I think. Mm -hmm. You kind of see this in his responses and kind of reading between the lines of what he says as he tries to get more information out of Gandhi. Rockford clearly has some angle on this that he didn't tell Gandhi that's going to get more money out of the $600,000 inheritance. So that means I can get more money out of it. You know, he's like, well, we're going to look into this too. Now this is our case. Yeah. Uh, So now they're in competition which Rockford does not know about. However, Jim is on the case at this point. He's kind of gotten Gandhi out of the picture uh, from his perspective. He's back at his trailer making some phone calls. Rocky uh, is there and wants to know where that ham went. Rocky Rocky is Rockford's dad and knows what's in Rockford's fridge, despite mm. the fact that he doesn't actually live with Rockford, or knows what should be in it, and is concerned about the ham being missing. And Rockford has a nice line in here, which is like, Gandhi eats my ham, you drink my beer, I yeah. need to make money somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he's uh, kicking off this little subterfuge to try and track down Finn O'Hurlihy who he knows was in San Diego at some point, like this whole thing, like the house and the inheritance and stuff, it all centers around San Diego. So he's calling funeral homes because he's basically trying to track down and he, he explains this plan to Rocky. So his dad here is really standing in as the audience to, to give Jim some reason to tell us why he's doing what he's doing. Cause it's not immediately obvious. Yeah. Calling funeral homes to find the mother O'Hurlihy's where she's buried on the assumption that they're Catholic because they're Irish. Right. Being Irish Catholics, the sons probably sent flowers to their mother's grave. So if that is in fact the case, he can then go back to the flower cellar and find out who's been sending the flowers and get an address. This kind of legwork is, I mean, like he comes out and says that, you know, it doesn't always work, but for jobs like these, 
you give it a shot. If it pays out, it pays out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's it. And he calls out that it's safe. Yeah. You know, it's easy. It's safe. You know, sometimes it works. So this is where the episode starts to kind of diverge in terms of the sense of urgency and danger for different characters. From Rockford's perspective, this is all very day to day. Like, this is the kind of thing that there probably wouldn't be an episode of the show about because yeah. there's really not that much to it. This is what he's doing between episodes. Right. It's what's happening with the other characters that starts creating urgency. From there, we jump back to Marcus and Gandhi. Marcus is dictating a set of legal documents that would sign over 40% of the inheritance to him. He's dictating them to a secretary that he apparently has in his lavish office with, like, artifacts and big vases. and. So this is stark contrast to Rockford's trailer, right. but also... Since we know he's a fast-talking scam artist, it's kind of like, hmm, is he really paying for all this, right? You wouldn't be surprised if they just walk out and it's someone else's office that he just, like, scammed for an hour, yeah. right? Um, he explains the scheme to Gandalf, which is, we'll tell him about the inheritance after he signs the paperwork. It's legal. And then we get 40% of the 600000 and you'll get a bonus in your check at the end of the week. And Gandalf takes exception to this, and he's like, without me, you wouldn't even know about this. I want half. Right. He knows he's not getting an envelope at the end of the week. Like, he knows that that's not mm -hmm. a thing that, that's... So it doesn't matter what gets stuffed in it. It'll never come to him, so... And this is where we see that Gandalf, while very straightforward, is not stupid. Yeah. Especially when it comes to money. Is this also where we get um, the first place where, where Marcus tries to leverage their dynamic as two black men? Yes. He, he definitely says they have to stick together because of their their race. and Because, you know, brothers got to stick together kind of thing. Yeah. And Gandhi's like, no, you need to give me half of the money. Yeah. 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 I think that's one of the first moments where that, that happens. He, he's feeling Gandhi out. He's trying to find out what angle and Gandhi is smart enough to stop him every... Every time he puts his feelers out, he just shuts it down. That's something about this episode is that a lot of the dynamic between the two of them is between two black men in a predominantly white show. Yeah. That's not ignored in this episode. And we'll get to a scene in which it is very yeah. relevant. But uh, even in the in the first introduction scene, Rockford says some things kind of like, I knew the two of you would get along. And it's kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and no one calls it out. They kind of give him a side eye a little bit. I think this is also a good time to reveal that this is not an episode of the Rockford Files. This is an episode of Gabby and Gandy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of the meat of the show. And, and this is uh, roughly where we just kind of follow them for a large part. Yeah. You get the feeling that they're trying to set up a spinoff. Wouldn't it be fun to watch these two for a while? And that I can see being absolutely motivated by demographics. We want to launch a, uh, a detective show with a black lead. And here's a here's the possibility right. to do that. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, as I was watching this episode, I couldn't help but think... Honestly, I couldn't help but think that I would enjoy that. I would watch the hell out of Gabby and Oh, Gandhi. yeah, for sure. I mean, they're a great opposites attract kind of pairing. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a thought. Um, I'm pretty sure that this is the last time that we see the Marcus Hayes character in the show, though. So, yeah. you know, who knows? Maybe something, maybe they didn't like doing it or who knows. But the interactions between them at, on the screen are pretty great. And we get more of these kind of moments that are leaning a little bit more into bringing in a, a more realistic sense of like how these guys would talk to each other when there aren't white people around, essentially. I just looked it up 
And it was absolutely true. Oh, really? It was an attempt to launch a spin-off show starring the two of them. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that explains a lot of why there's so much of this episode is follows them. Yeah. So we end that scene with, with Marcus agreeing to the 50% split under threat of physical violence. And then we have a quick interstitial scene where a guy is picking up a tuxedo and jumping back into his car uh, with a, a line that he's late for the wedding rehearsal. Yeah. So this is the first indication of anything to do with the title of the episode, Just Another Polish Wedding. See a guy, he's late for the wedding rehearsal, he drives away, next scene. Yes. This guy, he's interesting to me because he, he's got the feel of a, an early 80s heartthrob. Like, he definitely mm-hmm. looks like he would be in Journey. Yeah, but this is just planting the seed so that we kind of know who this person is when we see him later. Mm -hmm. We move on from there to uh, the gorilla that we saw earlier, uh, or one of his, his, his dudes, is hanging out in a car outside the probate court and is listening in on whatever phone they tapped. They're listening in on a call where Rockford is calling the guy to tell him, hey, I found the plot that the mother's buried in in San Diego. I'm going to follow it up. And he explains, I can get the guy's address if I find the flower, you know, whoever sells them the flowers. Um, this was a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. These guys were involved. <laughs> like this is Right. Yeah. You kind of forgot because there's so much with all the new characters and all this other and kind of the all the banter. This is where we kind of pick back up with the, the, the plot, essentially, the story that that Rockford's following. Regardless, uh, this phone call is overheard. The goon then checks in with the main gorilla, the first guy that we saw, who I don't think we ever get his name, to tell him, hey, I heard this guy Rockford, he's going to San Diego, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You know, what do you want me to do? And so they kind of split up. The guy who is listening in is going to or is going to go down to San Diego to check out the situation. The main guy is going to check out Rockford and see what his deal is. And he does specifically say there's no need to call Big Sal in Brooklyn yet until we know what's going on. So there's our second tell that, yes, this is the mob is involved. (laughs) Anyone from Chicago or New York, especially with some kind of Italian name or derivative, is definitely a representative of organized crime. We cut from here to our well-coiffed young man arriving to the wedding rehearsal that he was late for, apologizing. They're on the steps of the church. His car got backed into or something, and his parents are not going to make it to the rehearsal because they're stuck in snow in Wichita, but they'll definitely be there for the ceremony. This is some of the brilliance of the Rockford Files, because you're kind of holding on to all this as if it was important. When I watched this for today... I remembered at this point, the first time I watched it, going, oh, this guy must obviously be involved with the mob and his parents in Wichita is a lie. Right. That is where my mind went because it's a Rockford Files episode and that seems like the most straightforward uh, reveal about why we care about this person and why this matters at all. But what's really happening here is that these are all, this guy, his fiance, his parents, her parents, they're all real people in the middle of actual real lives mm-hmm. that are about to intersect with the plot line, but not actually driving it. So you get these juicy details that you're like, ooh, if I were running this as a role-playing game and I dropped those details, I, you know that the player characters would just sink their teeth into them. Mm-hmm. we gotta got to tease the plot out, and then you would have to shift to that. But right. it's... It's not, so you're 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 good. These scenes are just giving us context for a late for later scenes. Yeah. In a really interesting way. They're not filler. No, no. It's so that the later scene itself is not filler, right? Like it's right. so that there's a small little story being told about the wedding in and of itself. 
This is one of the few episodes of Rockford, I think, that has a clear A plot, B plot, and this is kind of a C plot about yeah. this wedding. It has its own little tension, its own little resolution. It, it may even be a D plot. It, it depends mm-hmm. on where you put the mob. Right. If they're their own plot, you know. That's... Yeah. I think Rockford's the B plot, like following, yeah. getting his 200 a day. And the A plot <laughs> is, uh, is Gandalf and Gandhi. Who we know now go back to as they have gone to the original, the original setting, the the farm or whatever that they were digging at. But now there's just a big mound of trash there, and this very economically, I think, yes. where there's just like a line about like, why are we here? Well, we need to find out everything we can about this guy. And then Gabby picks a piece of something out of this trash pile, and it has a name on it called Crystal Palace. They say, hey, oh, he was a musician, right? And this has come up in some earlier scenes that the guy they're looking for, real name Finn O'Hurlihy, but they, they can't find him by that name, so they're, mm-hmm. he probably has some other name. But he's a musician. They were both musicians. So that's the only other lead they have. So Crystal Palace, some kind of venue, that's their next lead. The economy here, you're absolutely right. This is, I mean, I wrote in my note, clue right off the bat. Mm-hmm. We're at this scene, which the audience has seen before. Mm-hmm. So we recognize what it is. What are we looking for? We're looking for a clue. Here's a clue. Let's go. Here's a clue. Why is this a clue? Because he's a musician. Okay, let's yeah. go. <laughs> and it was it was good. It was good. It it got them from from A to B. Oh, and B is so good. B is so good. Oh man. Okay, get ready because there's so much going on in this scene, and we're uh, maybe halfway through the episode at this point. Maybe a little more. Yeah. There's really only like two more like big scenes, but this is one of them. They pull up to the Crystal Palace. Marcus is like, you know, let me go in. I'll find out. I'll try and track him down. Gandalf will not let him out of his sight. Yeah, he knows he's going to run. Yeah, he's going to run or he's going to get scammed or something. And then finally it's like, fine, we'll both go in. And they walk into the Crystal Palace. Epi, tell me about the Crystal Palace. (laughs) Well, the Crystal Palace is like something out of Germany in the 30s or America in the late teens. (laughs) The Crystal Palace is a Nazi bar. It is head-to-toe swastikas. It is full of men in khaki fatigues with Nazi armbands on. There's nothing subtle about this at all. There is a flag on the wall. There is a framed portrait of Hitler behind the bar. They're playing polka music on the jukebox. There's just so... There's just so much here. Like, on the one hand, is this a thing in the early to mid-70s? Were there Nazi bars that existed in this manner where it's like you put on your right, Wehrmacht right. uniform and go to the bar to listen to polka music? I was too young for Nazi bars when I was <laughs> in the 70s. So I never, I never actually went to one. But, you know, it's closer to World War II, and that was definitely in the cultural conscience you know that people collected nazi memorabilia oh yeah you, yeah i mean as we as we dissect this scene some of the things that marcus is going to say are actual arguments i remember hearing in my youth uh things like this great line where is this great thing about this country where people of all political persuasions whether they're republicans or democrats or socialists or nazis <laughs> Or communists. <laughs> yeah. I, I Like, I feel like I'm, I'm stepping over some juicy parts because all of this scene is great. But when he says, or Nazis, they get up mm-hmm. as if he used a, a slur. Yeah. I mean, they're literal Nazis. They're wearing swastika armbands and they look offended mm-hmm. by the fact that he referred to them as Nazis, which is great. The idea that there is a bar for people who are into Nazi stuff or identify as Nazis to hang out together, not far-fetched. Right. Is there a changing room? 
Like, do, <laughs> right. do they do they walk out in public in the Nazi regalia, or do they come and go into the the cloakroom and change? Or so I know that in Chicago, there's a German area of town that I used to live in, and there was a bar there that, until the late '80s, they still had a Nazi flag on the wall. It was like old German men yeah. would go hang out there and kind of be together in their feelings of, you know, the glory days were the days of national socialism and stuff like that. Like that's a real thing. And I'm sure there are still places like that in the world in America, but the imagery, like the visual impact of the scene is a little silly. Yeah. It's a little central casting. Mm -hmm. But then it doesn't immediately break into a fight and it's not played for like want, want laughs. Right. There's an entire sequence of Gabby in particular trying to talk some kind of information that they actually want to get out of this situation without triggering violence. And that interaction you were just talking about, like that's part of what pushes it along from everyone standing around and it looks like the set of a movie mm -hmm. to a dynamic interaction that then breaks out into a fight in a way that makes sense from how the conversation one-sided as it may be has been going it's a fun scene to watch marcus try and uh work his magic which is just n not going to work mm -hmm. i guess my favorite part is that he says that he's from the liquor licensing board or something yeah. like that they're still not buying it and he says well then i'll have to talk to my supervisor and then gives him like like a supervisor's name is german von german you can see him trying to lay the groundwork for maybe calling up and pretending to be this supervisor yeah he's trying every trick in the book all they want to do is find out if this guy played accordion and what had you know the next step to trying and find him but these guys aren't playing right because they're a bunch of nazis and two black guys just walked into their bar patter is amazing it's you really i mean we're not going to try to recap everything it's you have to watch mm -hmm. the scene to see all the wonderful use of language here but he kind of finally spins down and he turns to gandhi and he just goes it's a cold house man <laughs> yes so or shortly after this, the, the tension comes to a peak and Gabby's out of things to say. And that's when Gandalf finally starts swinging. Yeah. And we get the most cathartic watching Isaac Hayes beat up a bunch of Nazis scene you never knew you wanted. <laughs> it was it was so good. The, from the get-go in that scene, when they walk in and everything kind of goes a little quiet, from that moment on, you, you just, you're just like, I cannot wait for Gandalf to just kick ass. Like, oh, this, yeah. is, this, this is the, like, oh, God. We've been just, waiting for this the whole episode and we didn't even know. Yeah, like, just, oh, this is going to be great. And it delivers. Marcus holds his own. Like, you kind of expect him to cower a little bit. And he does duck behind some things while... Uh, Gandhi does most of the legwork, but in sort of the traditional trope, the barkeep has a shotgun that he reaches for, and uh, Marcus waylays him and takes the shotgun and then shoots the framed photo of Adolf Hitler. I mean, it was a little bit of like, can I have your attention? Mm -hmm. But it's also a little bit of like, I have a shotgun, there's a framed photo of Hitler. Yeah. What else can we do with this? The show sets up this bizarre situation, and then resolves it in the most satisfying way possible yeah like they beat up the nazis they shoot hitler in absentia <laughs> they uh lean on the bartender they get the information they need which is just that back when the place was a quote-unquote alpine restaurant which i don't know what that means don't either 
they had an accordion player whose name is Frank Martin. Who played that alpine kind music, which right. I intended to, to jump on YouTube to find out if I can hear some alpine type music, but I forgot to do that. So if anyone's an alpine type music aficionado, let us know. Yeah. So that's the information. That's all they need. That's all they want out of this. Uh, they, they hit the burglar alarm so that the cops are going to come. Ditch the place. Uh, Marcus is still holding the shotgun. They jump into the limo, and the limo pulls away as the cops are arriving. And they don't get hassled, and they don't get messed with. They beat up Nazis, get what they want, leave clean. Our heroes. And oh, after they beat him up and shoot Adolf, there's this short diatribe that Marcus gets to deliver about the eternal strength of the middle class. Right. <laughs> and it's just, oh, it's good. It's so good. Oh, man. It's like, it's a real peak of a scene. It is. And I completely forgot. I've seen this episode before. I'd completely forgotten that this scene was in this episode until they walked in and we saw the shot of all the guys with their armbands. And I was like, oh, this scene. Yes. And like my eyes lit up. Immediately. I have, so I got to bring something up here because this is, there are a few weird things about this episode. But I think the one thing about this episode that's out of place is the limo driver. And the fact that the limo driver is not a character at all. Because mm -hmm. when they get back into the limo after this scene, I was like, oh, right. They have a limo and somebody's driving it. And I don't even know if we even hear his voice. He's called Alfred, I think. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Like he has a name. That, but yeah, he's barely in the thing, which is a little out of keeping because usually these minor characters are. Yeah. I wonder, and this is complete speculation, but I wonder if they did spin this off and it was the two of them with a limo, if they were then going to try and like cast a limo driver. Right. But they right. didn't really have anyone in mind, so they didn't want to like lock anything in for the actor. But yeah, we they peel away in the limo and we get a short scene of the two of them essentially celebrating. Yes. Yeah, we kick those Nazis' asses. And this is another one of those that, like I said before, where you have a moment to show why these characters might get along. Why they don't just leave each other behind. Yeah, I, I wrote down actually that this is where we see their first real camaraderie. Yeah. Where they're not sniping at each other and they're not trying to play each other uh, or get something out of each other. Where they're like, we did a thing and with the two of us together, we succeeded. Which is really nice. It's a really nice moment that, as you say, makes it make way more sense how they keep sticking together from here on forward. We follow them to Rockford's trailer where Marcus uh, is making a play to try and figure out where Rockford is in this whole situation. It's unclear what he would do if Rockford was there. But thankfully, Rockford is not there. His dad, Rocky, is instead. Rocky, in full old man Rocky mode, proceeds to spill all the beans about what Rockford is up to. His play for following the trail back to the uh, flower sellers to find the guy, etc., etc. It's great because you know, Rocky is bragging about his son, which is part of what's going on there. And also, Rocky remembers Marcus from being formerly a parole officer, right? Right. And so this is where we learn a little bit about Marcus's backstory. Marcus used to work as a parole officer, and that's where he originally met Jim. And then I think there's some explanation for why he quit or was fired and became a PI. But he either was a parole officer or that was a scam he was running at the time, and that's why Rocky remembers him from their first interaction. The whole time he's talking as if he was talking to one of a younger child's teachers, right? Like mm -hmm. in Rocky's eyes, 
Rockford is probably 16 years old. Yeah, it's adorable. It's like really kind of shows you the adorable, loving, but slightly concerned side of Rocky. Marcus is impressed by Jim's play here. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, oh, that's brilliant. I should have thought of that. But he basically gets gets the info on where Jim is and what he's up to and leaves Rocky to drink his beer and, you know, wait for whatever's going to happen next. When he leaves the trailer, uh, Gandhi was listening because he was just standing outside and could hear everything. And now he's mad again because Jim's his friend and he just heard Marcus sell him out, basically get this information and kind of lie to Rocky. He asks Marcus, aren't you ashamed, man? And Marcus replies with, it comes and it goes. (laughs) A a rare glimpse into the dark side of Marcus. Mm -hmm. They leave in their limo and then the goons who were staking out Rockford's trailer then follow them as well. Uh, We get a brief shot establishing where the, uh, the mob guys are in this situation we have another quick scene that's just a voiceover as we see the uh limo driving down to san diego uh and this is where we we get the phone call from the limo company asking how much longer do you want to keep this before you decide you want to buy it and mark is saying i need a little longer because i'm thinking about buying a fleet of them right that's his his scam for keeping the limo around he's auditioning it for a purchase that we know he's not going to make. This this is the moment that I really worry about that driver. What is going on in his head? So now we catch back up with Jim in his investigation. And in all this time, he's basically just gone from A to B. Yeah. He went to San Diego to investigate the graveyard, and now he's at the flower shop. He doesn't know that he's in a race, right? That That's, right. I think, kind of the fun thing about it. Like, he wants to get it done, but he doesn't have to hustle the way the other two, Gabby and the mob, have to hustle in order to keep ahead of what's going on. We still don't know what the mob's motivation is, except that there's money involved. Yeah. But Gabby knows that he needs to get to the the heir, the mark, essentially, first to get him to sign this document to get the money. Because if Rockford gets to him first, then he's going to get the full inheritance and Gabby will get nothing. Exactly. Uh, So Rockford's at this flower shop. He has a whole um, little Rockford song and dance about being a representative from Remember Me Incorporated, which offers personalized remembrance services. And the flower shop guy's like, they do that grave by grave now? Usually that's the whole cemetery at once. So in his perfect Jim Rockford way, he kind of explains how things are these days and people appreciating more personalized service. Right. This is great because this is um this is a character who, from the get-go, doesn't believe Rockford mm-hmm. or is suspicious of Rockford and remains suspicious of him throughout the entire conversation. And Rockford still gets what he needs. He just doesn't break the character, right? even though the guy keeps pushing on it and pushing on it. Yeah, he's a little suspicious, but there's enough, I don't know, compelling story in what Rockford is spinning that he doesn't see any reason to say no. And that's all Rockford needs. He wants to look at the account record so that he can get a name and an address. That's all he needs. So he gets the guy, Mr. Gertmengian, to show him the account. We see over his shoulder that the flowers have been being sent from a Mr. Frank Martin, and there's an address. So now we have established from two directions that they're looking for Frank Martin. Mm -hmm. Rockford just kind of buttons up the con and is, is like, okay, well, what you're doing is fine. So carry on and just leaves. From here, we go to uh, wedding bells playing at the church. 
That wedding, you remember, has been happening in the background? It's happened. The happy couple is coming down the steps of the church, and that's when a cab pulls up, and the groom's parents get out. They miss the wedding, but they're there now. Again, it's this all this wonderful background drama in the life of this wedding that we still, as audience, we're like, which one's Frank? What's going on? <laughs> you know? I'm like, oh, so the groom must be Frank, right? Right. That's what would make sense here. But then they call him by name, and his name is Fred. So it's not him. So we still don't know yeah. what is going on. So now we get each of our principals uh, figuring out how to, how to find Frank. Gandhi and Marcus go to the musicians' union and pose as gig musicians. Marcus goes into full slangy jive. Yeah. Kind of talk. He calls the calls the secretary mama and all that kind of stuff and smoothly pitches a story about how how they're supposed to come and play with Frank Martin. They never got the address. Where's it at? He's like, oh, he's playing a solo gig at this wedding. They're like, who's the wedding? And she says the name. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's a musician's too. It's a musician's wedding. That's why we're going. So he just like slides around these these logical obstacles. You can either have the lie, the con, the scam work or you can have it fail. But what often happens in, in the Rockford Files is that it gets you only so far and then you have to do something else. You have to downshift or you have to swerve around something to... Right. I'm using car metaphors, obviously, because we still haven't done a good chase episode. And but and, I, and it's great. I think that, that that makes all of these things far more memorable than they would be right. if Rockford just walked into the florist and dropped this line and it just worked. Or he walked in and beat the guy up and the guy told him what he wanted to know. Yeah. This is also, I started thinking about one of the, again, interesting parts of the dynamic in this is that Marcus here is doing a lot of, I think, what we'd call now code switching. And we'll see it again uh, in a minute. He's very practiced at presenting different cultural and subcultural and whatever tells to give people different impressions of him. Yeah, to fit their expectations. He's able to, yeah, uh, fulfill expectations of who he's supposed to be. So he can be a posh, rich guy in a limo in one scene. He's just kind of jive-talking musician in the next scene. And it's all in service to his agenda, which is really interesting. Uh, When they leave, Gandhi's like, you know, where'd you learn to talk all that jive, basically? And he replies with, I read Downbeat. (laughs) Which, contextually, I assume is, you know, a a black musician magazine or a black magazine or something of the time. I apologize if I'm failing in adequately recognizing a cultural signifier. But it's, again, part of this thing where they're living in this world and taking what they need out of the different cultures that they're in. As an audience member, they feel like real people at this time to me, right? They Mm -hmm. don't feel like caricatures, even though they use caricature in different scenes for the character's purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's uh, uh, just the way we operate normally. You just see it in in a more exaggerated fashion because he's he's not just being a certain person to his co-workers and a different person to uh his family since we're able to do that it's easy to see this uh extension to take the exaggeration and make it more natural yeah i guess yeah it seems like it's a very natural thing yeah rockford's approach on the other hand is to go to the address that he got and talk to the man's wife and find out that he's playing a gig he poses as a representative of the musicians union because he needs to find him to tell him about a new gig or give him money or something. I do like that they're both coming in, not only zeroing in on the, the person they're after, but they're both using sort of the same yeah. leverage. They, they both know that there's a musician's union and that that's probably important to what this guy does. 
Yeah. Yeah, so they both get the same information from these two different directions, which is that Fred is playing a gig for the Casca family wedding reception at this nautical club. We have a quick scene at the reception where we have our first actual kind of dialogue with Fred, the groom, and who you presume to be his best man. He's not happy with how the wedding went. His parents were late. And the groomsmen were all dressed differently or something like yeah. that. You all look different. Mm-hmm. Again, like immediately thinking that that was part of some scam. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's just a legit, normal, everyday wedding concern. Sometimes things just don't go how you planned and it's a little annoying. But as his friend reminds him, that's all over. The reception is going to be great. And now we get everyone coming to this wedding reception. I'm just going to go through each player and what they do to get into the invite-only reception when none of them have been invited. Rockford poses as club security, or he says he's a, from a security firm engaged by the club, and he just wants to check check it out so he knows where to position his guys to make sure that no one buys the reception. He's talking to the father of the bride, I think? Yeah. And basically scams the invite off of him so that he can quote-unquote show it to his guys so they know what to look for. And it's all just like smooth patter the guy kind of instantly believes him, gives him his invite, does say, oh, are you going to wear that? Because uh, he's not wearing a, a reception-appropriate sport jacket. He assures him he'll get his dress one out of the car. He's just going to check out the space. And then he goes in, invitation in hand, so that anyone else who challenges him, he can have his way be, be smooth. See, this is Rockford's smart move, right? Is I'm not going to pretend to be someone that anyone here would have any reason to know who I am, but rather just someone who has a legitimate reason to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcus, on the other hand, claims that they are old teachers of the groom, of Fred. They wouldn't miss it for the world. And, oh, he's he's a chemistry teacher. Gandhi is the gym coach, obviously. Throwing some shade. Right. And he tries to pull a absent-minded professor routine about, uh, I had an invite, but I left it in my book. And he lays it on way too thick, I, I feel. Yeah. Perhaps trusting in his slick talk that's gotten him this far. The guy checking invites isn't buying it and tells him no invites. Adios. Well, this is this is one of the guys that I'm not quite sure what's going on with the wedding, and I feel like he's a gorilla. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see him cast as a gorilla in this. So, like I said in the beginning of this episode, they're starting to have a look or a feel to them, and I was wrong. This guy is just a bouncer. So this guy, frequent watchers will probably recognize him because he's been in a bunch of episodes. Oh, that's And he, to me, is the most 70s-looking dude in the entire run of the series. Yeah. There's no reason I think anyone would know him. The actor's name is Bruce Tuttle. He's in four or five episodes. He's usually a, a gorilla. In this one, this is his only speaking role where he tells the guys to adios. And he just has... I can't imagine him in any other decade. He has such a great look. He's so, he stands out. He's such a goon. And he's been in a couple other like TV shows and in bit parts and stuff. But uh, yeah, just so, so 70s. So perfect. We get a a really good line from Gandhi Mm. immediately following this rejection where Gandhi says to Gabby, he says, I love it when you can't get your eggs hatched. Yeah, even though they're on the same side, theoretically, he still is taking some pleasure in uh, in Gabby's uh, lack of success running his mouth. So this is where he's like, that didn't work. So instead, we're going to pose as kitchen staff or waiters and go in the back. And then he plays a little bit of a like, yes, sir, get you whatever you want, sir, kind of jive. And Gandhi, he says that he is not going to be no Tom. Yeah, he refuses to do it. 
again, interesting and very real feeling interaction about this where it's like, you can present whatever face you want. I'm not going to go and pretend to be a servant in this white country club. Yeah, yeah. To all these people who are going to look down on me. It's a moral line that Gandhi gets to draw. Mm-hmm. I enjoy seeing how the two of them look at what is an available tool and what is... I was trying to think of something that might be the opposite of a tool, but... And what's too far? Or what's, yeah. what are you not willing to use, even if you could? They have different ways of dividing that. I mean, we don't really see much of what Marcus is not willing to do, but you assume it's not a whole lot of violence. Like, yeah. he... he he avoids that. And not only does does Gandhi say, I'm not doing that, but that doesn't stop Marcus from doing that. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that Marcus actually is able to leave Gandhi behind. Yeah. He, like, finally found the line. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting. So, Gandhi stays outside. He literally just sits down on the step and is like, all right, I'll just wait until something happens. And the the goons, the, the mob guys, pull up. They see what's going on. And they have a quick conversation about how, you know, we can't let this get out of hand. Things are moving too quickly. We're just going to whack him here. We'll just go in the back and yeah. kill him in front of all these people, basically. Why not? That's the cleanest way to do it. Right. But then that kind of amps up to like, oh, these guys, like, they don't just want money. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the first time we learn that they want to kill this guy. Um, and that's more important than whatever this money inheritance thing going on is. Yeah, we could have maybe guessed that earlier, but this is when it's made completely evident. So all of our principals are on the scene, uh, and we finally get our first real look at Frank, this musician with his accordion. He's going to be presenting Mr. and Mrs. Fred Koska. The Koska wedding has been what we've been hearing about, so there's, there's our Polish wedding yeah. for you, right? He's going to be playing them out to raindrops on the accordion. Which is their song. He has that great line where he's like, that's everyone's song. So he gets up on a stage and starts playing the accordion into this microphone. Once he starts playing, both Marcus, who has come in as a waiter, and Rockford, who's just been walking around and sipping drinks and, and trying to find the guy, realize that that's the guy. They both start trying to get to him through the crowd while the happy couple is dancing, having their first, you know, dance. Marcus gets to him first and starts just pitching him immediately. Like, I think he says 400,000. Yeah. So I have 400,000 for you. No strings attached. You just have to sign this and I can get it to you. And he's still playing the accordion. He's still playing the dance while Marcus is telling him this. And then Rockford gets to him on the other side and says... Mr. O'Hurley, he, uh, your brother died and left you this inheritance. You know, don't listen to him. I'm, I'm here to give you the information and the paperwork so you can claim it. But when he says Mr. O'Hurley, he, yeah. then our accordion player, Frank, uh, or Finn O'Hurley, he gets this look of panic. And he, you can see that he immediately stops listening to both of them, starts looking around, and then he just runs. And this is when the action kicks into high gear. The mob guys have infiltrated the party. They see him run. They start chasing. Rockford and uh, Marcus are both chasing him. Shots are fired, which alerts Gandalf outside. So he is ready for, for trouble. A man gets pushed fully into the wedding cake, which is a delightful moment. Uh, from the preview montage. And then once everyone kind of spills out of the club, Gandhi starts punching the, the, the mob guys. Rockford gets a couple hits in too. They subdue the these potential assassins of O'Hurley. In, in the middle of all that chaos, Gabby makes sure that this guy knows that it was him and his associate that saved his life. Right. Like, Still working some angle to get some money out of this, even though Rockford yeah. has flushed it all down the toilet. Once the goons are subdued, there's this great moment that kind of 
caps off the scene where Marcus is still trying to talk to O'Hurley. Rockford has one of the mob guys kind of in a headlock. Gandy's punched the other guy's lights out. And Gandy asks Rockfish, hey, what should I do? And Rockford just says, put him to sleep. And he just punches Gabby in the mouth. And we have this slow motion shot of him just, <laughs> just dropping straight to the ground. Oh, man. It's just this clean... Okay, good. We did it. Yeah. We hit this humorous note. And not only that, but at the behest of Rockford himself. It serves a couple things. Like, I agree that it is a little out of keeping because even even though, like, the, the fighting on Rockford Files isn't particularly, quote unquote, realistic, it's usually a little yeah. dirtier and grubbier than just, like, punching someone and they fall down. Yeah. But I think it is establishing, first, that Gandhi respects Rockford more than he respects Marcus. Yeah. That he is stronger than anyone else in the scene because he has that ability to do it. And mm -hmm. also that Marcus is kind of a featherweight, right? Yeah. While tonally it is a little weird, I think it does at least play into the characters as established. Because Rockford is just very like, I thought this was going to be very simple. And then it all exploded. And it's kind of Marcus's fault. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, plus he's still, you know, is probably hurting from that bill he had to pay at the restaurant. So. <laughs> So we finished this episode with uh, the cops arrest everyone. They throw the our three PIs in the back of a of a squad car. We get a little bit of exposition. So the the O'Hurley brothers stole that six hundred thousand dollars from the mob twenty years ago and then went into hiding. Yeah. So that's what triggered their name change and and that the mob never forgets. You know, and they were just looking to put them on ice out of revenge for that long ago crime. This is also establishes that nobody's going to make any money off of this anyways. Right. It's all for a loss. And then this little final bit is where we get Jim's great line. So Gandy says something to Marcus and calls him Gabby. Yeah. And so this is where Rockford then goes with what potentially would be our spinoff, right? Gabby and Gandy sound like a puppet show. <laughs> it does. They laugh and laugh. And we end the episode with the freeze frame of Jim and Marcus laughing and Gandy just shaking his head in the middle of them in the back of the squad car. So we established that no one made any money out of this. So Rockford definitely was out money. He may have made his 200 a day. He was working in good faith. You'd think that the county would still pay. And he found the guy. Exactly. I think Rockford definitely made $10 off the bat. Then had to pay that bill. He may have to repair his own suit. I don't know if Gandy will ever pay him back for bailing him out. There was another bit. Oh, the ham. Obviously the ham and the beer that everyone was drinking that was Rockford's. But, but he definitely, if he made his 200 a day, he's doing all right. The episode happens over the course of two days. So, you know, if he actually got his 400 bucks, that's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. But definitely the, the uh, Gabby and Gandy, they didn't make... No. They did not do well. If, if I were, I would not keep their books. That is definitely <laughs> something that I would not do. Uh, Rockford's would be a nice running joke. Gabby and Gandy's would be a nightmare. Man, there's so much to like in this episode. Yeah. Again, we like most of the episodes. But this one, the story, the, the, the plot, the mystery is kind of by the by. Mm -hmm. It's really more about enjoying these characters, uh, watching them punch Nazis, see <laughs> what it is that brings them together. They're not in a lot of other episodes. Uh, there's only two or three with each of these characters, unlike, say, Rocky and Angel and Beth that are in many, yeah. many episodes. So it's kind of nice to get the concentrated. This episode is kind of about them because we don't really see them very much. Gandalf is definitely one of my favorite fictional Gandalfs. <laughs> Maybe my favorite. I don't He's know. Definitely in the top three. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, this episode was, uh, like I said in the beginning, uh, it has kind of a romp feel to it and, and it, it's really enjoyable. And I do like the backseat that Rockford takes. It would be kind of fun to edit together just to see Rockford's parts. Yeah. At the end, when suddenly all of this, when all the shit hits the fan, like what? What's going on? Why are you here? What's happening? From his perspective, there's nothing really going on until yeah. he sees Marcus at the club at the end. That's the first indication that he really has that there's a race. Yeah. And same with the mob. Until they start shooting, he doesn't even know that they're there. So that part, I think, is 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 a lot of fun. And like I said, I would have watched Gabby and Gandy if they never got it together to put that one out. Cause... Yeah. That dynamic, definitely room to grow, right? Like, I don't know yeah. if I'd want to watch this exact dynamic over and over, but you could see there's enough. The characters are, are fully realized enough that you can see how they would grow over time, given more more time. One one other thing I, I, I like about this in terms of how it's structured and written is that we're expecting the twists and turns of the mystery because it's a Rockford episode, mm-hmm. but it's really actually pretty straightforward. The biggest turn is that it keeps giving us things that we think are going to be twists but then they're not then they're just side plots like all the wedding stuff there's a reveal about the mob it being mob money and thus no inheritance but that's not really a twist so the show itself the the way that it's written it kind of plays on its own structure because if it had like a twisty turny reveal that would probably distract from the the gold episode which is to kind of showcase uh gabby and gandy yeah Probably most enjoyable if you already have some context for the Rockford Files. So maybe not a go watch this as your very first episode, unless you yeah. absolutely love Isaac Hayes, in which case go watch this as your first episode. I don't think you need to see the the other Marcus or Gandalf episodes, but definitely if you're watching them in the order in which we are doing our episodes, which is there's no specific structure to what we're doing here, then you're you're fine. You you you've seen enough of Rockford. To kind of understand, but yeah, don't don't just start on this one. It won't have the feel of like a normal rock. Yeah, the, the nuances really pop once you have the context of the rest of the show. Yeah. I think. All right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and take our break, and right. then we'll come back. And uh, I definitely have at least one thing that I think would be really useful for games to talk about from this episode. So we'll get into Excellent. that in our uh, second half. All right. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this month, we have four of them to thank. Thanks to Kevin Lovecraft. You can hear him on the Wednesday evening podcast All-Stars Actual Play Podcast, where they're currently playing 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Visit misdirectedmark.com to find that feed, along with other gaming podcasts in the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. Thanks to Lowell Francis. Check out his thoughtful and extensive gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thanks to Pluto Moved On. Visit PlutoMovedOn.com to find a podcast about tabletop RPGs, video games, and other topics, along with YouTube Let's Plays. And finally, thank you to Shane Liebling. If you want to get a shout-out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out Patreon.com slash 200 day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. Thanks for being the angel beneath our wings. While we have you here, if you like the podcast, there's three ways to support us. First, rate and review on iTunes, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This enables us to do things like upgrade our audio, and if we get enough support, release shows more often, so it'll be more Rockford for you. And third, both of us have other projects. 
Epi, what do you have going on right now? Uh, you can check out my Sword and Sorcery fiction and the Sword and Sorcery fiction of other people, uh, along with games and comics at worldswithoutmaster.com. So Nathan, what do you have going on? Well, I'm always working on designing and publishing new games. You can find my current offerings, including the Worldwide Wrestling Role-Playing Game, at ndpdesign.com. Or check out my Patreon for process and new experiments at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Uh, welcome back to Under the Day. We're going to talk a little bit about just another Polish wedding and uh, the lessons to be learned from a Polish wedding when it comes to your fiction, whatever form it may take. This episode is a much more about the characters and less about the plot, and I think there's a lot we can yeah. look at from that direction. The first thing that I kind of want to bring up is looking at this episode from Gandhi's eyes, right? So he's friends with Rockford, uh, but he has concerns about how Rockford does his business, right? Like, he, he doesn't like that Rockford works for the county because the county is what put them both away. You know, he doesn't like the all the, the sort of cons and scams that we, as audience members, love mm-hmm. dearly. And one of the things that I thought was really well done in this episode was that they, putting the character of Marcus as sort of a more exaggerated version of the features of Rockford that Gandhi didn't like, mm. right? We, we established early on that the two, Rockford and Gandhi, get along to some extent that maybe uh, Rockford feels put upon by Gandhi. I mean, obviously, anybody who eats his ham is gonna, is gonna get his scorn. But then we have this, the, most of the show is about this relationship that is where Gandhi gets to be the one put upon by a caricature of Rockford in, in certain ways. Right. Gandhi calls Marcus Gabby because he has such a fast mouth, right? He's always talking. And Rockford also talks a big game, but Rockford, unlike Marcus, will stop talking if he thinks that it's not getting him anywhere. Yeah. And he's also more physical, right? Like he also, he blends both approaches. Yeah. And I really enjoy when people do that in their fiction, when they, when they uh, create opportunities to examine the different characters by their relationships with other characters. You can imagine at the end of all this, if Gandhi starts hanging out again with Rockford being like, Oh, well, thank God it's Rockford and not Marcus. <laughs> It's an episode of the Rockford Files, so it's easy to take Rockford's side in all of this and see Gandhi as sort of a, uh, I mean, vaguely parasitic, but I I guess that's not really what I want. Uh, I think more of just... He's a bit of a hard luck case, right? Like, Rockford feels a little bit responsible for him, uh, even when he rubs him the wrong way. He shows up, or he gets bailed out, and then the next morning, Rockford's like, well, I'll, I'll drop you off wherever you want. And he's like, well, nothing seems right. And it's like, I'll just... Just get out of my life today. Like, I I just, I don't want to get rid of you forever, but oh my God. And so it it would be real easy to look at Gandalf as a, as a burden. Mm -hmm. And I think the episode does a good job of giving us this sort of, okay, but here's what Rockford is. Well, his directness is the foil for both Rockford and Marcus, right? Like both of them are about redirection and misdirection and Gandalf is all about just going straight from A to B. I can handle anything that comes up in my way. He doesn't necessarily think about consequences. I think there's there's a way you could order these three characters in all these different ways. Rockford is more direct, but he cares about consequences. 
but he's also willing to employ subterfuge. Marcus is all talk, doesn't care about consequences at all, and not really physical. And then Gandhi is very physical, doesn't really talk his way around things or misdirect, but also doesn't really care about consequences or think about them. And you could probably do this for all kinds of different attributes, but I think that shows you a, a method maybe towards taking a character that we know well and then thinking about what are some other characters that can reflect what they do and what they're about and also counter what they do and what they're about. That creates a dynamic relationship between the three of them. So in the context of this episode, who would you say are the like protagonists between the three of them? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, and a valid answer is they all are, but I think there's yeah. interesting ways to look at it where only two of them are and the third is yeah. a side character essentially or a, a you know a foil or a reflection. I think you're right. Like one answer is yeah, they all are. Uh, or another answer is to take one or two of them and look at the episode in that way and then flip it around yeah. and take the other. Kind of like you said, if we just followed Rockford, it would be a very different episode. Yeah. But it probably wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Similarly, if Rockford wasn't in the episode, if it was just Gabby and Gandy, like this spinoff might have been, I don't know if there'd be so much of a change, right? Right, yeah. You can see uh, a version of the story where Rockford is just there in the beginning and just there at the end. It could be that, is it Freddy Costa? Costa. Fred Costa. That's the protagonist of our story. This this poor... <laughs> we see his, his poor maligned wedding. <laughs> He's having a bad day. He gets in a car accident off screen. Mm -hmm. His parents don't make it to his own wedding. His groomsmen can't get it together. And then, just when he thinks it's all set, there's a mob hit at his reception. <laughs> That sounds like a pretty fun, uh, fun story. Um, so like this idea of, of the, the characters mirroring or, or being inverses of, of others. Is that something that you would want to set up at the beginning of, a of something? Or do you think there's ways that that can emerge or like be a choice you make? In the creative process, like where does that come in? That's, I mean, that's a tough one. It's a fruitful exercise to start off that way and try and create characters that fit uh, that mold, whether or not that's the way you do it every single time that, you know, right. we're both indie gamers at heart. You, you change your game yeah. when you need to change how you do it. But I think that the, if you've got a story that you're working on, that you're a little bored with yourself, so you know that the, the audience, it's, they're not going to be eating it up. That's something that you can do from, from the get go is to just say, okay, well, what is it, uh, about this character that's, that I can reflect and distort in this other character that'll generate something more interesting. You can tell stories with Gabby that you can't tell with Rockford because you right. can let him go more over the top mm. than Rockford does. And, and the same thing is with Gandy. Rockford, James Gardner is a imposing dude. In all these episodes, there's all these gorillas that show up, but he, he still, he throws some punches, he, he holds his own, but you couldn't tell a Gandy story with him. You couldn't have him... You know, just decide to solve it with muscle. You couldn't have them beat up a bunch of Nazis? Yeah. Although, I pay so much money to see James <laughs> Gardner beat up a bunch of Nazis. Well, speaking of that, I think that stood out to me in yeah. this episode because, as we discussed, the the moment where they walk into the 
to the uh, the Crystal Palace, and there's all those guys in their arm armbands and swastikas. That first initial moment is kind of weird, right? Like <clears throat> it's it's a little bizarre. It's it's as if you stepped out of the rules for the show for a moment. Yeah, it feels like you stepped into a different story for a second. But then over the course of that scene, they kind of bring it back. And when you think about it, why not have it be a Nazi bar? It could have been. It could just be a bar. It could be a jazz bar. It could be a biker bar. It could be any of a, a number of things where the essential element of they get into a fight, Gandhi beats up a bunch of dudes, and they get the information they they need. Mm -hmm. That could be served by any number of settings. So why this one? And I think there's something there about it feels a little a little bit like a set piece, right? Like someone was mm -hmm. like, I really want to have a scene at some point where someone in the show beats up Nazis. Yeah. Finally, we can put it here. And in the context of this story, it's kind of playing up that Gabby and Gandhi aren't afraid of white supremacists, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are yeah. they are strong, confident men in their own right, even if they're cagey about, you know, because they're outnumbered, mm -hmm. uh, but they're not cowards and they're willing to stand up to this thing that is presented in the show as like, you're a bunch of out of touch idiots. Yeah. They're, the Nazis are sad. Yeah. They're, they're, you don't look at them and go, oh no, you look at them. I mean, you do go, oh no, because they're Nazis and you're always going to, but they're not celebrated in this yeah. moment. They're, they're set up. Yeah. They're, they're set up to fail, which is the cathartic part that we want to see quite often a show will have something like that and then the the huge tattooed white boy mm -hmm. nazi would stand up and you'd be like oh okay so here's the here's the threat here's the boss fight and that's not what this is yeah it's not video gamey in that way where there's like yeah where it feels like there's a boss like the guy they get the information from is the bartender who's a schlub and not wearing the stuff. Yeah, he may not even... That's just the theme of his bar. That's <laughs> right. all. Not to let him off the hook. He runs a, a, a Nazi bar. But I'm just saying, he doesn't... He's not a threat. Yeah. Like, these bad guys aren't cool. There's yeah. lots of shows where the bad guys are cool. Uh, and these these Nazis are not cool. They they seem real real dumb. So that's all to say that kind of there's a, there's a bit of a power, I think, in that idea of I've thought out this set piece thing whether it's a fight or a battle or a, a a scene a situation like i have this idea for this thing that takes place on a on a boat you know or something yeah. like in a stormy sea and i think there's some power in if you've thought out why it's important that you have that symbolism and and what you're trying to say with it as its own unit you can drop it in when things are getting slow right mm -hmm. Like this is very much for for games for the most part, but they were going to go to a place where they thought he might have worked. Right. Like that's that's what they were up to. And the operation of the scene was they were going to get the piece of information they needed. So why not have a fun, memorable piece of business in the middle of it, as opposed to you go to the bar, you talk to the bartender, he tells you about this guy. It also sets up both of those guys to succeed. Right. We get to see Gabby run his mouth mm -hmm. and come up with all this patter and come up with these stories. They don't work, but we get to see him do it. And by showing the limits of how his talking works, it kind of shows us like, oh, here's the range of what he does, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen him be successful. Now we've seen him fail. So we get that, that feeling of, of we know what he does. And then Gandhi gets to do what he does best, which is beat a bunch of people up and kind of be the smartest guy in the room just by not taking anyone's, anyone's guff. He's also the one who's like, we have to leave now. Yeah. 
And he like is the one that gets Gabby out of there before the cops show up. So he's also thinking a little, may not long term, but he's thinking that step ahead that Gabby doesn't sometimes. I think the order in which all that goes down is important because the moment they stepped in, you knew each one of those faces would end up on the end of Gandhi's fist. Like that's, (laughs) you're like, oh, good. You set the pins up and you just want to watch them get bowled over. That's all. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of great about that is that that they draw out that reward. You get that dessert last. Mm. So we're going to give you Gabby trying his best. I'm not going to say that would just be a boring scene because certainly you could write an astounding scene in which Gabby convinces a bar full of Nazis to give up some information they didn't care anything about anyways. Right. But if that works, then you don't get those pins falling over, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Then then why are they Nazis? Yeah, yeah. Like, the only reason that it makes sense for them to be Nazis, to me, is that we get to see them be punched. Right. If we don't see them be punched, then they shouldn't be Nazis. They should, you know, just be, you know, something else. Like, you don't fill a bar full of clowns unless you want <laughs> to see them get their feelings hurt. Right? Like, that's just how it works. That's an old saying. Yeah. (laughs) Again, because this episode is so, is less about the plot and more about the character interactions, it's another really good example of what's the next step? What's the next thing I need to know? Mm -hmm. Okay, I I learned it. Now what's the next thing? Okay, I learned it. And it's more about how they go about getting each of those pieces of information and following the trail than some kind of struggle to reveal hidden secrets. Yeah, to solve the riddle. Yeah, because there really isn't isn't much of one. Which is to say, if, if there is a riddle, then that's great. If there's not a riddle, you can still have a really engaging story. You just mm-hmm. shouldn't concentrate on the riddle. You concentrate on the other stuff. Uh, so the, the other bit that I really wanted to hammer home, when I talked about a bit in the, when we were uh, talking about the episode, but it, the scenes where characters have been at each other for a while, but we, as sort of a polite, contract with the the creators of the show agree that they get along enough to fight this whole time and still hang out then they deliver and give us these tiny little scenes that show these characters just enjoying each other's company and give you sort of a moment to get why they might be friends or why they hang out i feel like that is missing you know i'm not even going to go into a criticism of modern media (laughs) uh except to say that i really really love these scenes they don't take much they're just no. they're often just two people enjoying a fart joke together like it just <laughs> does it just really doesn't take anything to do it i don't even really think i need to go into much about what needs to be done if you want to write it into a story or whatever you just have a nice moment a good beat mm-hmm. and have that happen but if you're sitting at the table and you're playing a game it can sometimes be hard to make these things arise the feeling there is often mutual and happens because we, as players of the game, enjoy each other's company. Mm-hmm. So a joke will happen on the table level that we'll all laugh about. But if we think about what the characters themselves are experiencing, they may have no reason for hanging out other than their godlike avatars that are controlling them <laughs> are friends. There's kind of two, two parts of that I want to poke at. One is that this doesn't mean that you have to do some kind of elaborate pre-play Right. Figure out why everyone is with everyone. You can start with, uh, here's the premise for why we're together. Yeah. But then, you know, if you take the opportunities to have those character moments with each other near the beginning of the game, then you find out why you're all together. Like, you find out why you stay together. There's, like, opportunities that arise, particularly if we're playing the sort of default adventure games that Mm -hmm. we play, right? Yeah. Uh, Where people get hurt all the time, and we don't deal with that fallout because it's just a number, right? Uh, You can just simply ask, how 
do you help so-and-so tend to their wounds, mm. right? Or you're at the campfire at the end of the day and uh, tell us a joke that everyone enjoys. You, you don't even yeah. literally have to tell a joke that everyone at the table is going to enjoy. You, you just need to show the characters. And the AOK joke in this episode <laughs> wasn't particularly funny to me, but they loved it. And, and I, you know, when they laughed, I was like, yeah, I like you guys. Mm-hmm. We're all friends. Not only... If you're like running that game, can you offer those opportunities or kind of try to set people up for them? If you're at a table, you can reach out, right? And be like, we're splitting up this treasure. There's this meaningless thing that I really want. Who wants to try and convince me that they should have it instead, right? Or something like that. There's a way that you can do that. It doesn't have to be part of the big story that's going on. I think a lot of the time, in my experience, a lot of this happens in side conversations when something else is happening. Yeah. Someone else, they're rolling dice and figuring out something that's happening over on that side of the table. And me and you are just kind of kibitzing on our side of the table. Uh, and maybe we have a little bit of like in character joking that we do that no one else hears. And that's nice for us. But there's also, I think, ways to, hey, we're, you know, we're joking over here while you guys are doing that and just make it evident to the table, to everyone else, to your audience, that your yeah. relationship is growing with someone else's character. I ran a game. Uh, just this past weekend of uh, the Urban Jungle, which I've I think I've mentioned in the previous episodes, it's a anthropomorphic noir game that just came out last year from Sanguine Games. We were setting our story in the L.A. equivalent in the late 1920s, so the end of the Roaring Twenties, just before the stock market crash. And uh, one of the characters was this aging movie star in an era where movie stardom was a thing that was kind of still just coming about. This character was was having financial difficulties. It was one of the player characters. And we started the story off with her having a yard sale where she's selling off memorabilia from all of her movies. And I just got to go around and ask, like I asked her player, what is the one piece of memorabilia you refuse to sell? And then I asked another character, what is the one piece of memorabilia you're most excited to see on the auction block? And I asked another one, you know, what's a piece of memorabilia that you hid so that she couldn't sell it? Mm. You didn't want her to give this up. And those were really fruitful. Like they, they gave you moments for why, how the characters interact and what they care about each other. Um, maybe least of all the movie character, the movie star, but the movie star is sort of persona at this point is more self obsessed anyways. But you could imagine th- at the beginning of this Rockford episode, Hey Gandhi, what did you eat out of Rockford's fridge? Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter like in terms of the story, or it doesn't matter if it was ham or fish or eggs or what it was, but the fact that they had that as a, as a bit to go back and forth over to establish their relationship in the first scene that we see them in, Sets the tone for the whole rest of their dynamic. Yeah. They're just small bits, but they they really pan out. You know, they, they, they like you said, yeah, they set the tone. They, they give you the sort of the glue that holds the characters together. Otherwise, we'd just be watching a series of events. Do you have anything else? Uh, no, I think that's about it. It was a, it was a absolute delight once more. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we're really enjoying going through these. So I'll just quickly say that if you're enjoying listening to them, uh, please leave us a rating or review or pop over to the website, uh, leave us a comment or hit us up on Twitter. You can find all of our links and show notes, etc. cetera. Uh, you can find us. I believe in you. We'd love to hear from you about how we're doing with that. I think we have earned our $200 for today. Excellent. 
Thank you again so much for listening, and we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.